You call out to your favourite AI assistant and ask it to play an obscure song. Unfortunately, it starts playing the wrong song, which leads you to verbally abuse it. After a brief pause, the AI responds submissively in a female-sounding voice. Is there anything wrong with your behaviour in this scenario? And does it matter that the AI voice assistant was designed by predominantly male teams to sound like a submissive woman? Siri, Alexa, the Google Assistant and other AIs all have a default female-sounding voice. Why is that? Is it because we think of them as personal assistants and we stereotype personal assistants as female? We often think of robots as well as AI-powered avatars and assistants as mere things, but this is also misleading insofar as many robots and AI personalities are designed to appear gendered. And we tend to bring our human gender stereotypes into our interactions with social robots and AIs. So how should we think about the gendering of robots and AI? I'm your host, Professor Paul Formosa, and welcome to In the Cave, an ethics podcast. Here to help us think about these issues today is Dr. Ines Hippolito. Ines is a member of the Macquarie University Ethics and Agency Research Centre and a lecturer in the philosophy of AI at Macquarie University. Ines, welcome to In the Cave. Thank you so much, Paul. Pleasure is mine. Yeah, it's great to have you here today. So you recently published an article called Inactive Artificial Intelligence, Subverting Gender Norms in Human-Robot Interaction with colleagues Katie Winkle and Merita Lee in the journal Frontiers in Neurorobotics. Now, your paper focuses on exploring the role of gender in both the design of and in our interactions with AIs and robots. And look, there's a lot of really interesting and topical things to talk about here. So let's get started, though, with some you know, basic terminology. Gender is clearly important to discussion. So how about you start off by telling us what exactly is it that you mean by gender? How should we understand gender in this debate? Yeah, that's a great way to, to start. Um, so typically, uh, one would think about um, a distinction between sex and gender, where uh, sex uh, has to do with the physical appearance of, of the body. Uh, it has to do with um, hormones, uh, sexual organs, and is typically assigned by birth, um, given how the body uh, looks like. And gender, on the other hand, uh, is typically uh, more to do with constructive um, identity that uh, is constructed within a social cultural environment. One important uh, feature of it is that uh, gender is, of course, social, cultural and uh, psychological components, but it also is intersectional. And this means that uh, there are other um, factors or identity markers that are going to play a role in, um, in gender, which are, for example, race, um, ethnicity or other um, kinds of uh, social markers. So this is important uh, to note, as well as um, the fact that uh, gender also um, has to do with uh, the way in which we can think of it within a range. So typically, it's not kind of the same way that we would think about sex, which would be this kind of male-female binary, but there is a, a fluidity of, of gender that you can think of uh, within, within a spectrum. Okay, great. So I think that gives us a basic understanding of what we mean by gender here. So now I want to move towards uh, some issues around kind of cognition. Uh, in particular, you sort of link up the inactivist idea that cognition is embodied, and I'll get you to explain what that means in a second, with the claim that gender is a product of social and culturation. So you've already started to talk a little bit about how gender is sort of a social construction, but maybe you could expand on that a little bit more and tell us what it means to say that well, what's the link between saying cognition is embodied and what that can tell us about gender and how gender intersects with some of these other social identities that you've talked about? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, so here, what we can think about is that gender 
comes associated with the body, where the body is socioculturally situated. This means that as we develop as human beings, we develop within a very specific idiosyncratic social cultural setting or background. And it is within this setting that we are going to interact and develop uh, within the world. Uh, from an activist perspective, this means that cognition is something that emerges from a very specific social-cultural interaction uh, with the world and um, where the body that is situated in a social-cultural setting is going to determine a great deal of the kind of experience that uh, one is going to have as a human being that is part of a very specific social-cultural setting. So this is the idea from the inactivism. But I want to add here another layer that I think is quite relevant. And it is brought up by Simone de Beauvoir and then is developed by, by more recent waves of feminism. And here's the idea that the same social-cultural environment is not experienced in the same way by different people, depending on the body that they have. So the idea is that there is a grounding of the body that somewhat, to some extent, is going to determine the experience that one has. And here, the view, Simone de Beauvoir's view is that a living experience is a continuous negotiation between freedom and facticity, or, as she, as she puts it more precisely, between agency and objectification. So this continuous living of becoming a woman is in this continuous negotiation between this agency or claiming this agency and the objectification. And then uh, we have other examples in the literature that are quite interesting in this regard. Uh, for example, Virginia Woolf calls it the claiming of one's room, right? So that's again this claiming for uh, this agency. And more recently, we can think of uh, the work of Judith Butler, where it's interesting because there we, we, we can uh, um, understand a little bit more about gender roles as, for example, as if it were a play, um, in which case um, there are, we can imagine, of characters and how we, are, we expect them to behave in a certain way and how characters can also behave according to the expectations or they can challenge these expectations. So that's the idea there. Yeah, so this idea of reinforcing or maybe subverting norms we'll come back to later on and that's that's really helpful so i think that's nice a nice way to think about cognition is not this kind of you know uh, unencumbered kind of abstract thing it's something that a body does and this body is always in a particular social context and this body was brought up in that social context and interacts with other people and so forth i think that all makes a lot of sense as a usual way of thinking about these issues so let, let's move on from, from, from humans here for a second to, to get to the, the interesting stuff, AIs and robots and things like that. So what has gender got to do with AIs and robots, right? We don't typically think of things like a rock or a piece of software code or a chair as having a gender, although maybe some people do. Maybe some people talk to their car in certain sorts of ways. Um, so, you know... Why does it make sense to think about gender and robots? What, what's the link here? Well, actually, it's uh, interesting that you mentioned cars because that's, uh, that's exactly one of the, the examples that I immediately came to my mind as you were asking the questions. Because so one thing that I'll, I shall mention first is that in the English language, we don't really have the gendered, yes. right? But in many other languages, like German or French or Portuguese, we do have very clear cuts on what are the objects uh, by virtue of, uh, of their gender. That's why these languages are quite difficult to learn, <laughs> right? Because uh, even in German, you have the neutral as well, yeah. right? Um, so in English, uh, it doesn't happen as much, but there is a clear tendency of 
uh, for us to behave in ways that we gender objects. So this is very clear, for example, in cases where you see uh, how we tend to, to gender objects that uh, serve a kind, of, a kind of purpose to be used. Examples of these are cars, boats, tools. All of those are typically a she. So it's interesting that these are examples of objects that are supposed to serve a certain role for us, and they're usually the she. And another example that comes to mind is the Mother Earth, in which case it's interesting because here uh, we can uh, think of how this links to a whole established literature on ecofeminism, which precisely um, makes this analogy between what Simone de Beauvoir had called the othering of the woman, right? That comes from, well, the woman needs to claim that agency because it is being othered, it is being objectified, right? So then ecofeminism picks up on that idea and makes an analogy between um, the othering of woman and the othering of, human, of, of, um, of the natural world or the mm-hmm. earth, right? So that's ecofeminism, is the othering of, of the natural world. So there are a few examples in yeah. which... The objects that are supposed to serve us, they become naturally a she. Yes. So one would think that as we move on to develop robots, that one would think, given this, one would think that there would be a natural tendency to go ahead and naturally gender robots in the same sense, or a similar one at least. Yes. Okay. Well, let's explore that idea in a little bit more detail as we go forward. Look, there's a couple of different elements of your kind of, I guess, feminist critique of of, uh, gender and AI and robots and so on. I think there's, well, at least as I read that, there's at least three strands to that argument. First, there's this idea that AI and robots are designed with the purpose in mind, right? They're aimed to do things, and that purpose typically prioritises the needs and interests of men. A second one is that robots and AI can sort of reinforce and perpetuate particular gender norms, and some of those might be problematic. And third, a lot of this may be due to relevant dominance of men in the field of AI and robotics. So let's let's have a little look at those claims. In particular, let's, let's start with the first one. Can you give us some examples of how AI and robots tend to prioritise the needs of interests of men? Yes, definitely I can. And it's not that it is quite new in the literature that comes within AI. We can see the analogous case with even before we had made so much progress in AI, in technoscience, for example. So here we in the paper, we do uh, refer to to, to these as uh, by virtue of borrowing a concept from film, uh, which is the concept of the male gaze, right? And I, I think that's quite useful here to think about that in technoscience and in AI, which is the idea that it's not just that they tend to prioritize the needs of men. It's just even when you prioritize the needs of other groups that are not just a dominant group, it is under the gaze of the dominant group. So that is the issue. So for example, in technoscience, technoscience has been developed from a male perspective, a white male perspective, typically a Western white male perspective. And what happens here is that this is going to have profound impacts on medical technologies and women's health, for example, where you develop sexual and reproductive technologies which are going to come from, developed from the male gaze. So that's problematic because then they're typically not going to be suitable for a woman. 
so another example is the biomedical research and drug development, in which case, well, the same phenomenon tends, tends to happen. And of course, then we have uh, the, the cases that we do uh, develop a little bit more in the paper, which is the smart home technologies. So these techno-scientific research and developments that come under the male gaze. And then as we progress in our techno-science development, we arrive in AI and the same phenomenon continues. So it's, it is not necessarily the case that all the technology that emerges, emerges for and to serve the men. So that's also, there is that. But even if it is with the purpose of serving other groups, non-dominant groups, it will come from that dominant view. So it may be the case that it's not as suitable. So then in the case of AI, we find AI solutions or tools for that purpose or from that perspective, such as smart assistants uh, that appear kind of like with a female appearance and a woman presenting. Or we have robot design reinforcing this link between the woman and objectification because again it comes from this male gaze and then we have for example in large language models we see that the ways in which the large language models have been interacting with us they tend to reproduce and reinforce these biases that come from that male perspective so uh, we have a, a, a few examples of that particular case Good. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Look, if these things are being designed and built by a certain group, then they're going to bring their particular gaze and perspective to that task. I mean, that makes that makes sense. So let, let's let's turn to some of these cases in a little more detail. So let's talk about the gendering of robots. How exactly are robots gendered? How 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 is that done? Is it the sound of the voice, what they look like, and so on? And you know, is there evidence that we treat robots differently depending on what gender we think they have? So one thing is that there will be this because we tend to gender things there would be this tendency for us also to gender the robots, um, given the cues that, that the robot has. In this case, uh, there'll be uh, robots will appear to have a gender, for example, given their voice and speech, their visual appearance, uh, their behavioral programming, which is something that has been, has been more recently we've been trying to overcome in the, in the sense that smart assistants a few years ago were much more uh, submissive, had a much more submissive com- kind of, uh, kind of yeah. uh, behavior. We've been trying to correct that behavioral programming. Uh, And then also uh, names and pronouns. So these are the kinds of elements that are going to help us as we interact with a robot make sense of uh, which gender are we interacting with. And given our own already um, developed psychological schemas, we might be, and it's very likely that we are going to adopt those as we interact given the cues for the gender that we have been received. And we do that um, in a very oblivious way because we know very well that we are interacting with an object that is not a human being therefore it should not or would not have agenda and yet we will apply these schemas and and that's when norms and biases that are not inherent qualities of the robot but how, how, how we interact with the world are going to emerge and show up i think that i think that's right we do bring our as you say, our sort of social schemas or our gender schemas to our interactions with robots and AIs, whether we know it or not. There are lots of interesting studies that, that show exactly this. So I think it gives a lot of practical importance to how we gender or whether we gender a robot. It will change how we interact with it. So two points you particularly focus on is this idea that robots could be designed in ways that either reinforce or subvert gender stereotypes. So let's start with the first. Can you give me some examples of how they can reinforce gender stereotypes and why that might be 
potentially problematic. There's many examples, but I think the one that is the, the more intuitive one is um, the caregiver robots. So these are robots that are designed to perform tasks related to caregiving, such as assisting in household uh, chores or providing companionship, and are often given some form of feminine presenting or uh, behavioral aspects uh, to it in in the sense that they tend to be softer, rounded shapes, gentle voices, and um, have this kind of like nurturing behavior. So this is in one way, this is going to reinforce traditional gender roles in the sense that it seems that this would be a task or or, or, or this would be a task of a woman as opposed to a man, or we would tend to relate much more this task to a woman rather than uh, to a man. Why is this problematic? This is problematic because it is going to harm in the sense that it disregards the variety of skills and capacities and interests that a woman has. So typically assigning necessarily a caregiver robot as a female or as a woman is going to be harmful to, of course, reinforcing uh, gender roles. So if the if the cleaning robot always looks female, we tend to associate cleaning with fem- being female, and yep. it's going to reinforce, reinforce. it. Yeah, yep. perfect. So let's talk about this idea of subverting. Then, so you, you talk about how robots could be designed to sort of subvert or challenge gender stereotypes. So one question I have is like, how exactly would would that work? I mean, would we want, for example, a female gendered dishwashing robot to sort of refuse to wash the dishes if you're nasty to it or something like that? But what would people actually want such a robot? Don't we want our robots to be submissive? I mean, would it would it make sense to actually have them? subverting or challenging gender norms. Yes, uh, that's exactly it. The idea is precisely to intentionally subvert it. Yeah. So that's part of the of our role as we develop AI to educate for the subverting of the gender norms. So imagine that we are designing robots or any kind of like interface AI that uh, one is going to interact with on a kind of like a mundane kind of like environment. So the idea is precisely that. And in in the film industry, you have uh, this technique, which is this intentional subverting of the gender in in a script and then read it with the the subverted uh, gender and see if the script still makes sense or if it makes sense. So that's one of of the techniques that is precisely used in film industry precisely to overcome uh, gender roles and biases. And this is precisely the idea that we convey in the paper, is this intentional subverting of the stereotypes. So in this particular case of the washing machine, yes, you would have, for example, attribute more male attributes or presenting attributes to the washing machine in precisely the effort to subvert the typically stereotypically assigned uh, gender roles to a robot. And this is precisely what uh, the UNESCO um, has in mind with the program of I would blush if I could. Yeah. It's precisely this intentional subverting of stereotypes as we develop these, uh, these robots, yeah. Do you want to quickly explain that example? Because I know what it is, but the, the listeners might not know. Oh, yes, of course. Um, so it's interesting because at some point in time now, this has been corrected, as uh, as I was mentioning earlier, yeah. the um, behavioral programming has been cre- corrected. So at some point in time, uh, when you would interact with Siri and you would tell um, Siri, uh, you are a bitch, uh, Siri would uh, reply, I would blush if I could. 
this has been now corrected, but it was um, uh, this is one of the many examples uh, that we can find in a, in smart assistance behavior of this kind of like submissive kind of uh, and uh, behavior that then uh, gave rise to the UNESCO program. I would blush if I could, which yeah. is precisely this view of um, intentionally subverting gender norms as we uh, design for ethics designing um, in in AI. Yeah, and that's a, it's a nice example because it clearly shows a how it could reinforce and b how it's quite simple to subvert a particular one gender stereotype there. So that's a nice example. Let's talk about a, a suggestion you you make in the paper that could we design robots that are kind of either without gender or more gender ambiguous or gender neutral or something something like that. So first of all, what are we some of the benefits of doing this? And then a, a kind of worry one might have with this is that doesn't this still just reinforce gender gender stereotypes anyway by sort of indirectly reinforcing problematic norms about what sort of counts as gender ambiguous or gender neutral. So I guess, first of all, what are the benefits? Might be the benefits, and is there still sort of a problem uh, with this approach as well? Yes, um, this is a very good question, which uh, we do not um, solve uh, in the paper. It is a question that requires more research, and it's beyond uh, robotics, because this would, be, would fall within the debate around what gender is. Yeah. But here, I think that it is important to at least uh, retain that we do have a tendency to gender things, right? And in this particular case, it will be quite hard to achieve some kind of a gender neutral or gender ambiguity, right? That will be quite hard because we have this tendency to gender objects uh, around us. So then one way forward would be at least to design for diversity, to design such that we can have some kind of like at least some uh, representation of the diverse uh, fluidity within gender or at least that gender is not as easily identified but it is challenged in the way that uh, we design our robot presenting right so at least some kind of a way where perhaps having robots that cannot be easily gendered would be useful. Yeah, look, I think more robot diversity sounds like a good thing. I think we can, we can, we can all go for that. Last thing I want to talk a little bit about is you, you mentioned towards the end of the paper um, what you call four vectors of ethics and machine learning, namely explainability, fairness, transparency, and audibility. So can you talk a little bit about what these principles uh, mean and how they sort of uh, what they have to tell us about the sort of issues we've been talking about today about robots and gender and, and AI and all that? Absolutely. So this has to do with a well-known issue in AI, which uh, is the explainability problem. And uh, what happens here is that it's less to do with the hardware and how a robot looks, but more to do with how it's, it's software, uh, it's programming, which we often also call it the black box problem. And this is the case where we don't really understand how we programmers don't really understand how um, the AI makes decisions. So the decision-making processes are opaque. We cannot understand how the AI has come to a certain decision. This is the explainability problem. We cannot explain uh, the decision-making process. So this is, of course, going to be extremely relevant for the ways in which biases are going to be the output. And how can we, uh, how can we uh, go into the decision-making process in order to have a different outcome that is not a biased outcome? So this is the explainability problem. And it's, it's, it's quite important. And we really need to, uh, in the future moving forward, to really tackle on uh, this problem if we want to do something and address something about biases that are uh, generated by uh, AI 
systems. And then we have fairness. And here fairness is a, a quite rather difficult one because uh, how do you determine what is going to be fair, right? Because the dilemma here is that can you regulate for the variety or the array of different cultures and different individual experiences. Um, so fairness is going to be extremely hard, but at least we should at least keep in mind that we should think of fairness as intentional design for the empowerment of diversity and inclusivity. So that would be, for example, what I was just mentioning about intentional design. Yeah. So having those considerations in mind would be extremely important. And for that, in that respect, it is important that we uh, think about education of all of those that are involved in developing AI systems. It is extremely important that in thinking about this fairness, that those involved in designing AI systems receive and are well-versed in ethics training and critical thinking training uh, such that they can be prepared to design for this intentional ethical design. So that's uh, uh, one important aspect. And then transparency has to do precisely with the explainability problem is how can we make these uh, decision-making processes that are extremely opaque, like the black box systems, how can we make them more transparent such that we understand how the AI, uh, for, in, for example, large language models, came from uh, one given one prompt came to that uh, certain output. So it's how to make them more transparent. And then, of course, we have auditability, which has to do with uh, the ongoing monitorization of the system behaving as the system continues to interact. And I think that here, I'd like to mention that here, we could think of, a, I would think a better way. I have another paper that is related to this issue. We talk about, instead of, of, um, of machine learning training, we talk about machine learning education. So it's about more this idea of instead of like a training, it's an education that needs to be made for that system to behave in ways that are not harmful. Great. Well, look, that's an excellent summary. And thank you so much for your time, Ines. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Clearly, gender plays an important role in how AIs and robots are designed and built, but also how we use them and interact with these forms of technology, as well as the extent to which technology either reinforces or subverts our gender norms and gender stereotypes. So the next time you interact with an AI or voice assistant or robot, think about whether it was designed to have a particular gender and how that design choice impacts both the way it acts and also the way you interact with it. And maybe, just maybe don't be rude to your AI voice assistant next time it plays the wrong song. But that is all we have time for today. If you wish to read Ennis's paper, there will be links in the show notes. Thank you very much for your time. And this podcast has been a presentation of the Macquarie University Ethics and Agency Research Centre. And I've been your host, Professor Paul Formosa.